Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church, all of you who are gathered here uh, for us on site and online. And as I look up even higher, people in the balcony. Hello, balcony people. It's great to see you with us today. Uh, as we continue to follow the regulations of spacing and masking, more people are starting to come back, and so we're using our balcony now, which is exciting to, to see that that space is being utilized as well. Well, we are starting a new series today, focusing on a single topic that we're going to talk about for the next four weeks, the topic of grace. Understanding grace specifically from God's point of view. And as I was uh, studying and preparing this week, I came across a quote that I think is, is pretty relevant to what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. And the quote is this, is that perspective makes all the difference. It's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see that matters. Perspective makes all the difference. It's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. And as I processed this quote, I thought, you know, I, I think that's true, literally. Like, I remember back when I was in high school, I would take a drafting class. And, and the teacher would put an object on a table, and he would say, I want you to draw this from a, from a worm's eye view, kind of looking up at it. And then, and then he'd be like, I want you to draw it from a bird's eye view, looking down. Same object, but different perspectives towards that object. But I thought, you know, this also is true metaphorically. Because we look at things differently based upon experiences and, and expectations and perhaps different biases that, that are ingrained in us as we have grown and developed in the world in which we live. It's, I think this quote, that perspective makes all the difference, can be applied broadly across our world. It, it affects how we vote, the, the brands that we buy, where we shop, who we associate with and who we don't associate with. Another example I can share with you quickly is we're fast approaching to the season of Easter. And Easter is going to be experienced by everybody, regardless if you're a religious person or not, but it's going to be experienced from different perspectives. What does it look like to celebrate Easter from a secular perspective? Well, it's a four-day weekend. That's not bad. We have the Easter Bunny who arrives and brings chocolates and gifts to the kids. We, we hopefully will have the very last day of snow. usually happens right around, around Easter. But from a religious person, from a, a Christian perspective, we, we get to celebrate all those things. We still get four days off work, unless you're a pastor. Then you only get two days off work, because I work Friday and Sunday. You can still have an Easter Bunny bring some, some, some candy and chocolate. And, and yes, the snow will stop. We pray and trust. But also, there's another perspective. There's the perspective of that is when we remember the death of Jesus upon the cross. That's when we celebrate his victory on Sunday over sin and death. Different perspectives to the same thing. Now, we want to be careful with this quote, though, because like most quotes and analogies, they have a limit. You see, we can push this idea of different perspectives on the same thing to the point of, of trying to support relativism, which, which would be taking it too far. Because the reality is that while different perspectives on the same thing can exist, that doesn't mean there isn't a constant truth. There is a constant truth. Consider, for example, our sunset is somebody else's sunrise, that's a point of view. But the constant truth is that there's always a sun. The constant truth is that the sun never truly sets, that the earth just goes around the sun, and unless you're a flat earther point of view, then I'm not sure how that works. But that's another point of view. You see, the same is true about the things of God. 
different points of view, but constant truth. So much of Jesus' ministry, he spent trying to reveal the truths about God and shift people's point of view so they could see him more clearly. And, and he did this quite often through, through parables. And, and parables are these stories he would tell where he would take a, a heavenly truth and then he would bring that alongside an earthly reality to help people understand, have, have a point of view of that heavenly truth from an earthly reality that they could experience and understand themselves. And, and through this powerful style of teaching, many, many people came to find new life in Jesus Christ. But there are some of a different perspective whose hearts were not open to seeing the truth of him. And, and that's why Jesus said they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Well, the next four weeks, we're going to look at four of these parables. Four parables of Jesus that focus around the concept of grace to help us understand grace from God's point of view. Now, as I make that statement, you might be thinking, Pastor Mark, are you suggesting that we at West Meadows don't understand grace? That we don't know what grace from God's point of view is? And and that's not quite what I'm saying. I, I actually honestly believe that West Meadows is a very gracious community. I honestly can say that for about the last five years that I've been here, we have continually been growing in grace and growing and being a safe place where people of different views can come and, and wrestle with those things and, and, and people who are curious about the things of Christ and the difference that Jesus can make in your life. It's a safe place to enter into that journey. And I would suggest to you we need to be a community of grace if we're going to reach our community for the sake of Jesus. But at the same time, I don't think we ever fully comprehend grace from God's point of view. Like as the classic hymn says, God's grace is so amazing that the more we learn about it, the more we experience, the more we apply, the more that we can live out in others' lives. I think the more we do that as we journey with Christ, the more we realize just even how, how, how scandalous his grace can be. That word means that it violates the accepted principles of what's right and what's wrong. It means that sometimes his grace does what we we don't expect it to do. But that's not new. You see, Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about this when he says, Jesus Christ, who came full of grace and full of truth, would be a stumbling stone to some people. But to those who believe in him, they will be never put to shame. Jesus, who some said was a great teacher, a rabbi, a a prophet, maybe, maybe even the Messiah. He would do what others wouldn't do. He would would talk to the outcast woman at the well. He he would move towards and he would touch and heal the sick. He would move towards the lowly, not not push back and, and, and not associate with them. He would earn the rebuke of being the friend of gluttons and drunkards and sinners. He, he would hang on a cross, and in his dying breath, he would look to a, cross, a, a thief on a cross beside him and say, you'll be with me in paradise today. I think Jesus' life and his words have much to say about grace. Things that we don't perhaps fully comprehend. And, and my hope is that over these next four weeks, these four parables will help us understand grace from God's point of view. And we begin today with a parable, a short parable, that Jesus told about two men who came to pray at the temple. And if you want to follow along for this short parable, it's found in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, and it's found in what's referred to as the journey section of Luke's gospel. 
This is where Jesus has made an intentional turn to move towards Jerusalem. And everything that happens from this point on is on a walk towards Jerusalem. If you perhaps take this as a bit of a reading plan between now and Easter, you'll see that as we, as we move from, it actually starts in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where he makes a move towards Jerusalem. And then all the way through, it's this constant trajectory towards Easter. Maybe it's a reading plan you could take in the next four weeks to read from, from, from Luke 9.51 right through to the end and, and, and experience the reality of Good Friday and Easter. But, but this is the traveling journey. And as Jesus is traveling, he's, he's healing the sick and he's debating the Pharisees and he's teaching his disciples about the central values of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we're not told what prefaced this particular parable, except that somehow the topic of how a person earns right standing before God came up. And, and, and we get a hint that perhaps it came up in a similar way that somebody may position that today. Say something along the lines of, yes, Jesus, that's, that's fine and all, but, uh, you know, but I, I believe in God. I follow all the rules to the best of my ability. And you know, I think I'm a really good person. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good, especially compared to some of the people we've met along the journey here, right? And so, so clearly God must be pleased with me. Something along that must have taken place in the conversation because we're told in, in verse 9 that, that this prompts Jesus to tell a parable about two men who came to pray at the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And in verse 11, Jesus says that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, and he prayed, God, I thank you. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You know, those robbers, those evildoers, the adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. And then he goes on to justify his statement by saying, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, in the gospel, Pharisees are the favorite foil that the writers put out there. They're, they're typically the villain in practically every story where Jesus and a Pharisee exist. They're the favorite foil, the favorite villain that we see there. And so as we even read this very brief description of a Pharisee right now, we've learned from other stories of Pharisees in the gospels that particular point of view. And, and, and I think, okay, well, it's more of the same. This guy's not much different than anybody else, and I'm not going to lie to you. The Pharisee's not the hero. When we get to the end of the story, he's, he's not the hero. Uh, but sometimes this perspective that we've picked up by reading the Gospels of how Pharisees are just always evil and corrupt, it, it can actually obscure Jesus' core message in this particular parable. See, because this parable is not about positioning the Pharisee as the epitome of false piety and corruption. Because not all Pharisees actually were that way. See, there were some stories, and there were some Pharisees who were just genuine people who were, who were honestly trying to be respected leaders and serve and, and honor God and, and lead the people to the best of their ability. There were some Pharisees that didn't really make it into the Gospels, but there were some who were looked upon that way. This guy is actually presented in this parable as a model of piety and virtue that is to be emulated. You see, the example, the brief example we have here is of a man who has gone far beyond what the law and the Torah required. That it's gone far beyond what, what he needed to do to be in relationship with God. And he voluntarily went above and beyond. He talks about fasting twice a week. That wasn't commanded. 
You were supposed to fast certain times throughout the year for, for different festivals, but there were some who voluntarily chose to include in their worship fasting twice per week. On Mondays and Thursdays, in fact, they would choose to have nothing but bread and water. For you and I, this might be like we choose to fast, where we, we give up food for 24 hours, but we, we go above and beyond. While we're giving up food, we also go to the mustard seed and serve food and, and just kind of push it to the next level. He says he tithes, which was commanded to give 10% of everything that we earned to back to the temple. He was doing that. That was commanded. But here it says he gave 10% of all that he had and, and all that he purchased as well. Now, if you buy something from somebody else, they've already tithed on what they've made off of that. But, but he tithed off what he earned plus what he had. For us, we still are told to support the local church and, and to give, and we're very blessed by the generosity of this church. But if you use a particular percentage on how you give to the church, I'm going to hazard a guess that you take that percentage off of the net, right? Of what's left after taxes and deductions. This guy's taking the percentage off the gross, kind of above and beyond, if you will. See, the problem with this Pharisee is not his lifestyle. He's presented as a man of piety and, and, and trying to honor God to the best of his ability. The issue is not his lifestyle. The issue is with his heart. The issue is with the way that he approaches God. Because his prayer begins like an Old Testament psalm of David, praising God, saying, I thank you, Lord. And then as he's about to get to all the reasons he's thankful to God and, and how good God is and how glorious and powerful, he takes a sharp left. And rather than praise God, he celebrates himself. And he reveals in his words that he wears his accomplishments like a badge of honor. The only thing he communicates to God in his prayer is, God, you're sure lucky to have a guy like me on your team. And isn't the world a better place for it? Is he sent you the prayer that he offers? You see, on one hand, this Pharisee, he inspires a hunger in our lives to live a greater life of devotion to God. But on the other hand, he just kind of turns your stomach. Like, this is this nauseating spiritual arrogance. And as he's praying this nauseating prayer, he must have seen another corner of his eye a tax collector who was praying too, and the condition of his heart leads him to say, thank God, I'm not a despicable sinner like him. Now, it's hard to hear, but you know what? For Jesus' audience, they actually would have identified with those words. You see, tax collectors were the real villains. They were, they were kind of the equivalent to like a flames fan in oil town. Like, you didn't trust them, you didn't associate with them, and they left town as soon as possible, right after getting beat last night. See, these tax collectors, they were traitors. They were Jewish people who were recruited by the Roman Empire to collect taxes from other Jewish people so they could take these taxes and give them to the empire. They were traitors, but they're also considered leeches upon society because they were notorious overchargers. And he had to, because you got to make sure Rome gets theirs, but i got to get mine too. And so they accumulated great wealth off the dishonest gain from their fellow countrymen. And this particular tax collector who was at the temple at prayer is no different. He's guilty of all that, and probably even more. How do we know that? Because of how Jesus describes his posture. 
How Jesus describes his actions and his words as he comes to the temple to pray. In verse 13, it says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he, and he beat his breast and, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a, a sinner. He didn't feel worthy to even stand in the presence of the courtyard of the house of God. Not even to drive into the parking lot of the church. He stood at a distance. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because the weight of his shaming guilt just just fixed his eyes upon the dust of the ground. And he beat his chest in sorrow, fully aware of his sinful state. You see, there's no self-congratulations. There's no summary of good deeds. There's no, God, you ought to be proud. There's none of that. The only recognition is his need of God's gracious mercy in his life. The word mercy that's used here is a Greek word that means to cover. And he uses it in this, in this prayer, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. He uses this word in a sense to say that, that I, God, I, I know I've dug a pit God, God, I know I've done wrong. God, I know that there's this huge deficit that I can't recover from on my own. I, I can't recover. I, I can't cover. I, I can't deal with it on my own. God, I cry out to your mercy. I plead for you to step in and deal with I can't deal with myself. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But would God hear a prayer? From a man such as that? Like, does God hear the prayers of sinners? If you were in the dirt, feeling the weight of that sorrow and shame, and you cried out, like, does God hear the prayers of people like that? Well, Jesus answers the question for us quite quickly. And he answers the question in a way that, that would have surprised the Pharisee for sure that would have shocked his audience that he was telling this parable to as they were walking along the road to Jerusalem. And he tells it in a way that would seem scandalous even to some today. Because he says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than that other Pharisee, went home justified. For all who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. See, in the moment of that prayer, Jesus is saying the floodgates of heaven open wide and this social, religious, outcast life overflowed with grace. Now, at first, this parable seems to be about exposing the hypocrisy and the arrogance of a Pharisee. And that's inescapable. That's, that's in, it's in the story. But the parable has a much sharper edge to it than that. See, the parable has a much deeper meaning to it than that. It, the, the point of this parable, as short as it is, it is to draw into question the very reasonable belief that exists in, in the time of Jesus and exists even within some churches today and some people who regularly attend and are faithful devotees to God. The reasonable belief that God's grace falls upon the obedient and his scorn falls upon the disobedient. It's a reasonable belief to hold. It, it makes sense to our human logic. But if that is the truth, then something's gone wrong in this story because the self-admitted sinner is the one justified, not the, not the righteous 
religious devotee. It's a small wonder that Jesus earned that rebuke of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, the truth of the matter is this. The, the, the core cutting issue of the parable is this. Is that the righteous stand no closer to God than the unrighteous who acknowledge their need of his grace. See, because the initiative of grace lies with God and his freedom to embrace sinners. The initiative of grace lies with God and his freedom to embrace sinners. Because when God is in the equation, his divine presence puts to shame any human deeds that lay claim to his grace. And Jesus underscored that at the end of the parable by saying that humility, not pride, especially not spiritual arrogance, is the pathway to God. See, this Pharisee approached God from a perspective of thinking that that the good things that he had done, the, the good things that he was continuing to do, the very right and noble and appropriate things that he was doing somehow earned him or even worse yet maintained his right standing before God. Now, there may have been a day in the past when, when he first came to God and, and acknowledged God in a, in, a, in a posture of humility. There may have been a day at the, at the start of his journey with God where he was fully aware of his sinfulness and, and he acknowledged his inability to recover or, or to cover over those wrongdoings and that he needed to humbly come before God and, and be granted by God's grace that right standing. There may have been a day when, when he would have joined the tax collector in kneeling in the dust saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Psalm 86 may have been on his mind where it says, For you, Lord, you are good and you are ready to forgive. You abound in mercy to all who call upon your name. There may have been a day where he started there. There may have been a day when each of us started there. But then along the way, something changed. As he journeyed with God, something changed. After years of faithful worship, after years of faithful devotion, he started to attribute worth and value and merit to his religious service. Thinking, well, this must count for something. And in the process of doing so, started to lose his humility. I heard a story of a church, uh, not in these parts, uh, down in another place, but it was a church, like a lot of churches, have the signs out front, of their, out front of their buildings. And every couple of weeks, the janitor would go out there and he would change the sign and put a different little saying up there. Quite often witty ones, right? Like my kind of humor. Dad jokes, puns, witty things. Like, if you're praying for snow, please stop, right? Uh, things like that. Or, or maybe a little, a little wittier than that. Something like, you know, God's looking for spiritual fruits, not religious nuts. Thing, you know, things like that, right? Well, this one time, they decided to put something a little more serious up on the sign. And so they put the words, this church is for sinners only. And prompted an email from a member of the church who sent an email to the pastor. He said, Pastor, when I first came to this church, I was welcomed with open arms. And over the last 25 years I've been a member here, I have overcome so many problems and strongholds in my life as I accepted Christ and grew in my awareness of him For 25 years, I've worshipped, I've served, I've tithed, and as I drove by the church today, I was shocked to find out just how unwelcome I am now, to find out just how this is no longer a place where I can belong because you are only welcoming sinners. 
You see, one of the dangers of following God for a long period of time is we can lose our sense of unworthiness. As though our good acts, our, our, our Bible reading plans, our, our worship, our giving, our abstaining, somehow makes us less needy of God's grace. And we want to do all those things. Please worship and, and invest in your life in praying and reading your Bible and serving and, and tithing and, and following all those commands and avoiding the things that would, that would corrupt our lives and affect our witness, you know, negatively affect our witness for Christ. Please be obedient to those things. But, but please don't believe that they somehow earn or maintain our righteousness. They're, you see, those are things that we use to express our thankfulness things that we use to build up our lives and to build up and strengthen our commitment to God and and to understand to deeper realities what it means to have new life in Christ. They serve a purpose. But the purpose is not to earn or to maintain our salvation. Probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible that people would know who have have been around the church for any period of time would be Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's our part. To put our faith in God and allow his grace to save us. For it is not from ourselves. It never was and never will be from ourselves. It always has been and always will be a gift that God gives us. It's, it's not by works. Why? Because if it was by works, then we would start to boast. And if we start to boast, boast turns to pride. See, grace is defined as this unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and blessing that God bestows upon. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned. If there was some way that we could suddenly start to earn it, start to deserve it, it would cease to be grace. Because by definition, it's unearned and undeserved and unmerited. And if it's not grace, then what is it? Well, the Bible says that the things that we earn, the wages of what we earn, the things that result from our actions actually is sinfulness and separation from God. Not right standing with him, but separation from him. See, because if we earn it, then we can demand it. And if we can demand it, then we can start to believe that we built it. And if we start to believe that we built it, we can trust in it. And if we start to trust in it, it turns to pride. And pride is taking our eyes off of God and putting our eyes upon what we can accomplish. And if we put our eyes on what we can accomplish, it's not long until we start comparing what I accomplished to what you accomplished. And it's not long until we find ourselves in the courtyard as a Pharisee saying, thank God I'm not like him. Ever, ever said that phrase? Maybe not out loud, but in your mind, in your heart. You ever said that? Maybe when you're scrolling through Facebook posts or some comments, thank God I'm not like him. Standing in line at a grocery store listening to a conversation, oh, thank God I'm not like them. Maybe looking across the sanctuary. And, and you see somebody, you don't like the way that they talk or the way that they're dressed or, or, or you can assume a worldview about them. Heaven forbid their, their ethnicity or, or their past wrongs and you look across, you're like, ah, thank God I'm not like them. You see, the words can sound like we're giving thanks to God for his graces and for the freedom that he's brought to our lives and how he has, he has set us free in Christ. The words can sound like that, but we know the motive. If we ever find ourselves saying those words, we know the motive comes from comparison. It comes from, from judging. 
And it's so easy to do it. It's so easy sometimes even to justify doing it. There's, I read a story about a Sunday school teacher who was, who was sharing and teaching this very parable to her elementary students about the Pharisee who comes and prays this, this, this troubling prayer and the tax collector who pleads for mercy. And then when she finished her lesson, she said to, the, to these young students, now children, let's pray and thank God we're not like the Pharisee. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> It's the same thing. It's just easier to justify because, yeah, thank God we're not like him, but it comes from a position of comparison. It shows evidence that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus to some degree and we've started comparing. Now, it's true that all of us are at different points in our spiritual journey, that, that some people do truly live more faithful, devoted lives than others. That, that's true and that's, and that's valid and that's not something that we want to ignore Imagine, for example, we're all like light bulbs. And, and some of us, from a religious perspective, we, we kind of burn bright like a, like a 50-watt bulb. And then there's others who are, you know, a little dimmer, 25, 25 watts, right? And then there's some, they're, they're, just, they're just jazzed up about everything. They're like 200 watts of, of energy and light that comes out, right? And so we have all these different light bulbs that burn at different brightnesses. Some shine brighter than others. That, that's truth, and it, it happens, but that's not the comparison that we want to hold up highest. Because you see, if you're in a room with these different light bulbs and some will cast a bigger, broader light, a, a brighter light than others, but if you open the window and allow the sun to shine in, the comparison becomes trite. 25, you know, 50. Compared to the power of the sun, it, it really doesn't seem to be anything anymore. You see, when we first come to Jesus... We're aware of just how dim our lights are when we receive him. We're aware that we have lights that are, that are dimmed way, way down, maybe even to the off position. And we need his presence in our lives. And, and as he comes into our lives it, it, from this posture of humility as we seek him and we receive his grace and we receive his mercy and the forgiveness of our sins, over time our, our, our lights start to shine a little brighter. A little further into the world our lights can shine. That, that happens when we experience new life in Christ. Our, our lights start to shine brighter. But there's a danger in that because by nature, pride is always knocking on the door, wanting to help us inflate our perspective of just how bright we shine. Paul warned his church about this in Romans 12 when he says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. This verse, and what I'm sharing with you, it doesn't mean that we should think of ourselves as terrible people. It doesn't mean we should think of ourselves as just, oh, just worthless. That's not the message. The message is to simply remember the words. Reminiscent of, I don't know if you've ever heard these before, but the words of Martin Luther as he laid in his deathbed. And as he laid there moments from dying, thinking of all the things that had been accomplished through him in his life, he asked for a piece of paper and a pen. And as he laid there at the end of this incredible ministry that changed the church and changed Christendom, he wrote the humble words on a piece of paper, we are all beggars. We are all beggars. That is true. And these were words that came from a sermon he had preached years earlier where he was describing 
Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have a posture of coming under God's grace, that posture of humility? And the full line he included in that sermon was, he defined it as this. We are all mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. You see, we come to the cross with nothing. Seeking only what God can give. That being the bread of life that feeds our souls. So that we would never hunger again. And when our spiritual bellies get full. Meaning that when, when we receive that forgiveness of our sins, when, when we are freed from the shame of our past, when we're given a hope of a future, a promise of a new reality in which we can live eternally with God, when we experience new life with Jesus Christ, a transformation takes place. We enter into new life with Jesus Christ and our, our light gets turned on and we start to shine brighter than ever before. But we need to remember that we are still just recipients of the bread of life. At no point in that transformation did we become our own source of bread. Recall why Jesus told this parable? It says in verse 9, Jesus told this parable to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down upon others. So it says in verse 9. And see, when we see others that are seeking, that are pleading, that, are, that are, are longing for the gracious mercy of Jesus, when we who have found bread see those people, we face a choice. We can either allow the pride of our own status of beggars who have found bread to swell up and start to forget that we still are beggars and we can deny those people a seat at the table. Or we can maintain our humble posture. See the common need of grace that all of us, that all of us share. And we can show others where to find food for their souls. This is why grace can seem so scandalous to some. Because when we understand that we're all beggars just searching for food, the righteous stand no closer than the unrighteous who are aware of their need for God's mercy. 